Okay, so good morning again, friends. Uh, and this week, since Tezar is not here, I'm going to try to do something new by starting the sermon with a seemingly random story that I'll try somehow relate to the Bible, okay? So, my dad. He's a pretty interesting guy, right? Some of you may have seen him in action in some events. And he's someone who's done pretty decently for himself. He's no conglomerate or mogul, but his family certainly never went hungry, and he managed to send both kids to an education abroad. So he's you know, relatively successful. But for someone who is so successful, counterintuitively to me, his all-time favorite holiday destination isn't anywhere where you would find any tourists on holiday. My dad has zero interest in going to Europe or even Bali or something. But he is always down for going to his kampung, right? This humble little town which used to be eight hours away from the nearest major airport in North Sumatra called Padang Sidampuan. And, and this is a legit journey to get there. And he'd make us all go there every year back then, not because there's anything to see there. There aren't any mountains or beaches of note nearby. And after my grandma died, we didn't really have much family that lived there. Then we, when we did go there, we didn't stay in any fancy resort or villas, right? There were none. But we would sleep mostly at my grandmother's old house, which wasn't a hole by any means, but would certainly be more comfortable just staying at home in Jakarta. And why my dad thought that it was worth it for him to make this effort to go there because it kept him grounded. You see, for him, going back to his roots, seeing where he used to live, what his school was like, his humble beginnings, allowed him to see how far he's come and how his work has paid off. Like it gives him this affirmation that he's done all right from some preman from Padang Sidempuan. Right? Making it easy for him to be happy with himself and how much he's able to take care of his family now, never letting how much success he's had go to his head while being able to resist the feeling like he has to prove anything or catch up to anybody else. In other words, grounded and secure with his identity. Now, as we continue on our study in the book of Ephesians this morning, we'll study a passage that describes where we came from in some of the most clear and vivid terms in the Bible. And I think this passage can do for us what going home did for my dad, keep us grounded specifically in who we are in the eyes of God. And I think, I don't know if you agree, this does a world of good for Christians in this age that we're presently living in. Because now, more than ever in human history, our sense of self and our sense of self-worth is constantly under attack. We live in this age of information, which is great for some reasons, but also exposes us to so many expectations about what we look like, what we should be able to afford, what you should accept as truth, endlessly giving us reasons to feel insecure about who we are and unhappy about what we have. And no wonder why the stats show that people of our generation, that we have more access to resources than ever, are more depressed and lonely than ever before. 
So friends, as we read this wonderful passage, let us try and allow our hearts to be shaped by how God really sees us. Okay? Our origin story taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. This is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. I don't know about you guys. That's powerful stuff, man. And I find this passage so profound because it speaks so directly and comprehensively to my identity. Because it addresses the three levels of identity that are necessary for me to find security in it. Our background, our value, and our purpose. And we'll be discussing this text under these three headings, hopefully to show you that you can actually enjoy the security too, okay? So our three points, you can think of it as three things that you need to remember in order to have a secure identity. You need to remember, one, our, how hopeless we were or our background. And two, who Christ made us to be or our value. And three, what we're now capable of or our purpose. Let's get into it. We're going to go through this pretty much verse by verse. So it's pretty handy if you have your printouts out there. Okay, so point one, you can be secure in our identity when we see how helpless we were. So last week, friends, in our study of the book of Ephesians, right, we saw Paul's prayer for us that we may discover new depths, but the immeasurable greatness of the power of God through Christ. Paul in that passage, just magnified Jesus to the highest possible terms, seated in the heavenlies, far above every dominion and above every name that is named and has put all things under His feet. And because this heavenly King has united the church to Himself as His body over which He is head, He has sealed for us this glorious inheritance by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the God we're working with here, guys. There is none 
more glorious. And in the passage that we just read, we see Paul focus on who it is that actually this God decided to unite himself to. And Paul also puts this in quite absolute terms. That although we may be physically alive, verse 1 unmistakably tells us that ultimately we are spiritually dead in our sins. You see, Paul here uses a metaphor of death to show how our faith was completely hopeless. There's nothing we can do apart from Jesus, apart from Him, We were done. We were cooked because we weren't sick. We weren't struggling. We weren't even dying, but already dead in sin. But interestingly, in verse 2, if you notice, it also says that we were walking in the sins that we're dead in. So we're dead, but we're walking. We're the walking dead, right? (laughs) Bringing nuance to this metaphor to illustrate that though our status is labeled officially as dead, it is not as if we're inactive. Rather, we are very much active in participating in the cause of death, which Paul clarifies looks like choosing to follow the course of this world, choosing to carry out the desires of our depraved body and mind. Because Paul tells us this is the natural tendency of the human heart that is dead in sin. And though this is our natural tendency, at the same time, it is also true that God will hold us accountable for every selfish and sinful decision we make. He sees them all and He will make it right because a truly righteous God cannot just let sin be. He must justly hate sin and be wrathful to sin. Hence, that's why in verse 3, Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. But Paul goes even further here in the middle of his diagnosis about our condition. He tells us that there is more going on in our rebellion and how the deck is actually stacked firmly against us. Because we were dead not ultimately because we don't know any better or we lack the self-control to fight off these rage sinful urges, but actually there are powers working in the background against us. Paul calls them the prince of the power of the air. These dark, spiritual forces of evil scheming our downfall and deceiving us into sin. Right? And again, I'm not talking about some mystical or spooky thing, right? Not tuyul or pochong or kuntilanak or whatever you may think that is. Although, Paul does clearly think that this power is personal. Although it is material, immaterial rather, and we are captive to it. So it's not just this abstract concept of sin, but it is a personality. And this personal power is ascribed to have some sort of ability such that it can influence our choices, our aims, our ambitions. So much authority over all of us that Paul actually 
envisions these powers as being intimately connected to the earthly entities. In every political, ethnic, social economic structures that seeks to divide the world that God intends to unify. Every power, system, or authority that is bent against the will of God and facilitate the selfishness of man is under the power of the prince of the power of the air. So the world is really against us. It's really us against the world. And look, I don't think Paul is trying to scare us here. Remember, when the end of chapter 1, Paul just emphasized actually has all the authority, who's actually in charge. But we do need to realize that our condition is worse than we could have ever imagined. Internally, we have all of these raging sinful lusts that demand satisfaction. And externally, there are powers that are greater than us that we don't understand that is trying to condition us to forget about God and indulge in these desires, trapping us in this hopeless life of selfishness and sin. This is where we came from. And sadly, this is where those who are without Christ still are. Do you guys relate to this at all? Have you ever felt frustrated because no matter how much you try to deny or suppress it, you still want that which you know is wrong? Have you ever felt the overwhelming pressure from this corrupt system that we live in to undermine the law? Have you ever been educated by your culture or upbringing to think less of people who don't like you or don't have as much as you do? If we're still dead in sin, we wouldn't care and we th would think of these things as just normal. However, Paul wants us as regenerate Christians to flag these things as the powers we're once enslaved to so that we can begin to notice them and resist them. Now, if this is your first time hearing this, I realize that this might feel a bit counterintuitive to most of us. Like, we're not that bad, are we? I'm sure you are aware that you're capable of pretty good things sometimes, and you probably have done something that's benefited a lot of people and helped a lot of people. I'm not disputing or minimizing that. We're not programmed to only do evil. In fact, the Bible affirms that every human is capable of both good and evil. But the problem is with the human condition is that we can't completely stop choosing sin. And our sinfulness is so pervasive that even the best things that we do is still tainted by selfishness and pride. And no matter what we do, friends, we can never make up or make right the many times we have chosen, chosen to do what is wrong. Our good deeds can never make us break even with God. Therefore, our good works cannot solve the problem. We must still be held accountable before God. Friends, acknowledging this helplessness that we have is actually a good thing. 
Because believing that it is really on us to save ourselves, that we're capable through doing good and through being religious to get right with God, man, that is a lot of pressure that no human can handle. And that sounds like a lot of stress and anxiety for me, always wondering whether we've truly done enough to justify ourselves. And I personally feel so much that it would be hopeless if it was up to me. And the good news that the Bible is trying to tell us is that it is not up to you or me or anyone, but the one who is far above and above every authority is actually the one who has made a way for us to be set free from our death and enslavement. Just point two. We can be secure in our identity when we see who Christ made us to be. Now, turn your attention to verse 4 and 5, and I find this to be some of the more encouraging verses of the Bible. Definitely some highlight-worthy verses here. It says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses, saved us. We cannot miss here, friends, Paul's clear emphasis on how we have zero part to play in God's decision to save us. That it was never because of anything good or noble we did that proved to God that we are worthy of being saved. It was not something that was given on the basis of our worth, never something that we had any right to. Nor was it because of some potential that God saw, like somehow He foreseen that He would get it right. No. It's clear that the Bible tells us it is 100% only because of the love of God for us that surpasses understanding. Because clearly says that God saved us when we were still dead in our sin, before we had any remorse for it, before we had any desire to change, when we were still dead. That's why Paul concludes twice, actually, in the text, emphatically in verse 5 and 8, by grace you have been saved making his message unmistakably clear that our salvation, the love God has for us, what he daily continues to do for us, was always something that was received, not achieved. It is a gift. That's what grace literally means in Greek. Charis, which is grace, means gift. We're saved by God's lavishly generous gift. So, if you forget everything else I say today, and there's one thing I want you to remember or process, is, that, is this fact, that God loves me. His love for me is received and not achieved. I cannot boast. This is such an important truth to internalize, friends. Because for one thing, this is the only way that we can find any sort of stability in our identity. Because what's the alternative? 
trying to derive our value from something else, right? And these things might not even necessarily be bad, right? Like the approval of our family or friends, or how much we can earn, or the number of people we can positively impact. These are good, even noble and important things, but these things are things that are by nature not capable of being resilient enough to go through the ups and downs of our performance and life circumstances. Our family can be the source. They won't always be around, and they might disillusion or disappoint us, or they might not even care for the things that we care about. Our income fluctuates greatly, as we've discovered in the past few years, often depending on conditions beyond our control, economic conditions, political policies, and so on. And we won't always generate the outcome that we intended, despite our best efforts and intentions. And if not these, what do you think gives you worth? Do you really think that these things are capable of giving you the stable and lasting affirmation that you need instead of just some temporary and fleeting feeling of gratification. I seriously doubt that. Because the truth is, friends, no created thing is able to be the sure and steady source of significance that we all need. We are always designed to derive it from someone else. It can't come from within, has to come from someone else. Someone who will always be around, who will never change nor leave us, and someone that has so much authority that recognition from this person is objectively, un not debatably, significant. And we all know who it is, the only one who is qualified to do this job, don't we? That's what's been uh, talked about by Paul in the last couple of chapters. And he elaborates further there in verse 5 to 7 on what the recognition by God for us that we are valuable turns former sinners who are dead in sin into. What God recognizes us currently as and why it actually gives us value. Paul here very intentionally uses language that shows that our identity with him is now the complete reversal of the state that we were before we were in Christ. So he says in verse 5 that because God loves us, we who were once dead in sin is now made alive together with Christ. What does that mean? Well, in verse 6, Paul continues to describe what it means that we're now alive, that we have been raised with Christ and are now seated with Him in the heavenly places. And what Paul brings into view here is what we actually talked about earlier in our statement of faith is what theologians call the doctrine of imputation or how Jesus' life becomes our life. And this is how it works, right? So recall the gospel story as we've established, we were dead in sin, we're hopelessly in the mire of our sin, being subjects of God's righteous wrath. But then here comes Jesus. 
He didn't deserve to die. He deserved no wrath because he lived perfectly without sin. But in fact, because God loves us so much, he sent Jesus who willingly chose to die for us on the cross to satisfy this righteous wrath of God in order to take our place and that we can be forgiven. Okay? That sound familiar? And because Jesus never sinned, God can raise him back to life in order to ultimately sit at God's right hand to be the ruler of all creation. And Paul is saying, and the doctrine of imputation summarizes that God actually joined our life with Jesus' life. Such that in Jesus' resurrection, we were actually brought back to life with him. Because on the cross, this beautiful exchange happened. Amazingly, Jesus wore our story in shame and exchanged it. And he gave us his perfect, righteous, and beautiful life. Such that now when the Father sees us, he no longer sees our deadness. As our statement of faith beautifully reminds us, he sees it as if we've never done those things. But he sees Jesus, beautiful, righteous, and perfect life, and he can't get enough of us. He loves us so much. That's the doctrine of imputation. That is how God sees us as valuable. And what we cannot miss here is that Paul makes explicit that this identity, this new life, and this position of authority that God has given us is not something thought of exclusively in the future, but something that is very much relevant and valid in the present. We are so joined to Christ that as far as God is concerned, we are right now where Jesus is at seated at the right hand of God. Physically, we might be here, but spiritually we are with Christ in the heavenlies, liberated and free from the sinful world order like Christ is, and having power in Christ over the powers that once were oppressing, enslaving, and deceiving us. So when it says in verse 7 there, in the coming ages, Paul isn't talking about some future time sometime after our death. Rather, it is very much in the present, in the ages that are now coming, since Jesus is seated on the throne as king. And he goes on more beautifully to say that why we are enjoying these privileges, God's intention behind this love and freedom God gives us freely, is because that God is so full of love that He wants to show us, He wants us to experience how immeasurably kind He is. God wants to be good for us, good to us, not because we can do anything good for Him in return, but simply so that we know that He is good. The Most High God sent His Son to die for us. 
and to daily bear patiently with us as we fail so that we may never forget that we are more loved than we could have ever imagined, though we are more sinful than we could ever have known. To me, that's profound, friends. There is no greater testimony to our value than this, no grounds of confidence and self-esteem more stable because nothing will change how God sees us because it was never up to us in the first place, not to, uh, up to anybody else but Him. So we are free from the pressure of performing for Him. His love is not dependent on how we perform. Therefore, making it finally possible for us to taste and see that it really does make a huge difference and we're doing good works because we have been loved first as opposed to doing so in order to be loved. Just point three. We can be secure in our identity when we see what we're now capable of. Let's come back to the text here, friends. I find it interesting how in verse 8, Paul repeats what he said before in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. But he includes here the additional detail of through faith. Now, this can be a much larger conversation, but suffice to say that we can find in the Bible whenever someone is said to have faith, it is always when they took action based on a relationship of love and trust with God. Like when Abraham obeyed and was willing to give up his son because he had faith in God's promises, God declares Abraham to have faith. Or when the woman with the bleeding issue pushed through the crowd and touched the fringes of Jesus' clothes because she believes that he is the Messiah that heals. Jesus said that your faith has healed you. So faith in the Bible is not thought of as just this mental ability. It's not just about believing, but just as equally, it is about these tangible actions that we do that are based in this transfer of trust from our own wisdom and power and to the faithfulness and goodness of God. You see? Such that we're willing, we're capable of willingly obeying Him even when it seems counterintuitive or even crazy to us or the people around us. Being confident that God knows better and has much better plans for me. So Paul is saying it's this transfer of trust which tethers us to the life and freedom that Jesus makes accessible for us. And Paul's clear, isn't he, in verse 8 and 9, that all of this, our salvation and the faith that allows us to access the salvation, is completely unmerited. So do you realize what this means? That every motivation, power, and energy that we have to act based on, on faith, to reenact our Christian life and do works of obedience is itself a work of grace. 
only possible because God revived us first from our spiritual death. So the order here is so important to remember. It's new life, then faith, not the other way. Or another way to look at it is that for Paul, God's grace isn't just this one-off thing that he did on the cross. But for him, it is very much a present power, an ongoing source of energy, inspiration, personal love, and presence to him. If we read Paul's letters in his writing, it clearly shows that when Paul's imagination is captivated by the incongruity, the disparity between Paul's worth and the surpassing riches and kindness of God, it becomes this vital power in his life that is able to carry him to continue to obey and do things that he himself didn't think he was capable of giving him strength in the most dire and hard moments in his life. So I hope what you guys haven't missed in all this is my emphasis on our active participation at this point. Because as we've established, grace established this relationship with God and generated us in us this faith to remain connected to this relationships. But though we are passive recipients of the gift of salvation that God gives us, verse 10 makes it clear that now that we do have this gift, it is expected that we would respond actively. It reminds us that we were created in Christ for good works that we should walk in them. You see, Paul assumes that the gift indeed comes with an obligation to respond. Reciprocity, how you say it, is indeed expected from the receiver in the form of relating to God and His world in a new way on God's terms, no longer relying on our wisdom and power, no longer according to the ways of this world, according to the lusts of our flesh, which previously enslaved us when we were dead in sin, because all As Paul states in the letter to the Romans, for example, we are dead to sin and now a new creation who is alive to God, free from our former conditions of being enslaved from the powers of sin and death. Therefore, now we've been given a new purpose and task to be producers of God's work. And so although we're not saved by our good works, we are definitely saved for good works. That's what verse 10 is telling us. So that means, friends, that according to the Bible, we are being truest to ourselves when we are doing good works, not when we're being tossed around and obeying the desires of our flesh or trying to frantically appease or meet some expectation of the world. Because our identities and our value are no longer governed by these powers. And isn't this just a much more consistent and meaningful motivation to do good works? We're no longer doing them to simply avoid punishment, nor to somehow justify 
our value or worth. Rather, our good works now are meaningful because we are living out our purpose. We are being who God made us to be. And isn't that simply just more enjoyable? I know a bunch of you guys in TCC are uh, into running now, and um, some of you even ran a half marathon right before the service, so I'm shocked that you are able to stay awake at this point. So maybe this example will land. It's like the kind of difference between running just to lose weight and running to see how fast you can run, right? And right now, I'm pretty out of shape, so running isn't fun. But when I do like it, it really feels like a chore, but I manage to muster the will to do it sometimes because, well, my pants are getting tight. However, I did run more. I did run more a few years ago when I was more in shape and I didn't actually need to run as much as I do now. But back then, I ran more so that I can see how much better I can run. I wanted to beat my personal best. So I was thoughtful about how I run, my form, when I should run, what I should do to prepare myself to run. I was excited about it. Now, when I do it, I want it to be over basically as soon as I start. And the point there, I guess, is that good habits, good works, are more easily formed and maintained when the mindset behind it is not to fix something that was broken, but to maximize potential. That's what we should be thinking about when we do our good works. We are maximizing what God created us to be, truly fulfilling our purpose. So friends, if you confess to be Christian today, and you do trust, that God has already made you alive in Christ. No matter how mature of a Christian you think we are, we are still prone to go back to our old habits. Sometimes we can still live like we're dead. Remember, the whole world, the whole system of the world is out there against us trying to get us to sin. And when we do eventually cave to the weight and expectations of this world and we lose track that we're actually free, the temptation is to go back, to go right back to trying ourselves by means of our wisdom and power again. But in those moments, friends, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the opportunity to stop and ask yourself, in what way Am I trying to still get our identity from our own view or the world's view of what's right instead of actually following Christ to do good works? This is a question that we all need to ask ourselves over and over and over again. Again, not because our dedication to good works is what frees us from the power of sins or saves us, but because we won't actually be able to experience and feel this freedom unless we find ourselves in this gospel story and transfer our trust to Jesus. Then 
we can actually live like we're free to do good works and not under some kind of pressure to get it done. Okay? However, if you don't think you're a Christian today and you're still exploring, but you do realize that you're trapped in this circle of sin and are burdened by the expectations of the world and you're sick of it, God is telling you today that He loves you. He sees all that you've done, all that you're ashamed of, all who you have hurt, and He's saying to you that it's the past and I will take care of that for you. So if you're willing today to transfer your trust to Jesus and find your self-worth in what He declares for you, about you, and not what you or anyone else thinks, Jesus is telling you that right now you're already alive, you're already free, and you are also invited to live in this freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a magnificent truth that no human words can ever do justice to. What a wonderful mystery, Lord, that you have taken us, flawed, unworthy sinners, and lifted us to sit with you on the throne in the heavenlies. Father, make that reality more real to us, above our insecurities, above all the things in this world that we think define us. Allow ourselves to be defined by what you have declared about us. Allow us to rest secure in you that we may see that your love for us surpasses understanding and live day by day with joy, knowing that we are valued by the King and Creator of the universe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.